Welcome to the LDA Podcast. I'm Matt Richter, one of your co-hosts for the show. This is a slightly different format from what we normally have planned for you. Our guest today is Nigel Payne. And if you know Nigel at all, you know he's a bundle of kinetic energy. And having a conversation with him tends to go in all different directions and is always delightful. Well, in typical form, we took up the entire show and we went in lots of different directions, at least when it comes to leadership and leadership development. We'll return to our regular three-segment format next time. So Nigel is an organizational learning and leadership consultant. He's a teacher and an L&D expert. He's the author of several super books, most notably Workplace Learning, How to Build a Culture of Continuous Employee Development, and Building Leadership Development Programs, Zero Cost to High Investment Programs at Work. Nigel's just the person to join me for a nuanced dialogue about leadership. So welcome to the show, Nigel. How are you? I'm good, thank you very much. I've just got back from Australia and I feel, I think probably first day, I feel really fine and totally normal. Which yeah. is good, good to good to experience. I have to say, and tomorrow you'll uh, crash, huh? Uh possibly. Yeah. So, so Nigel, one of the things that I I, I do I authentically admire the most about you is not only are you um, an expert in organizational learning, but you're also an expert in leadership leadership development. You're an expert in and how we should conceive of it. I think you're one of the thought leaders and how we should think about leadership differently than traditional modeling uh, has dictated in the past. And um, you're one of the, the folks that I've enjoyed partnering the most with because you uh, really are thinking about how leadership should be conceived of differently, uh, more effectively and you don't tend to bash it in the way some others like Pfeffer or Kellerman do uh, when they think about current trends in leadership development. And so it's been a pleasure to learn from you uh, as you think through those things. Yeah, I, I, I read Pfeffer and Kellerman with, with great interest. Uh, what disappointed me slightly is that neither of them, uh, it's all right saying that leadership is rubbish, but what comes in its place? What do you do as a result? You just you don't abandon people. And there, there, Kellerman says at the end of her book, well, what we actually do to rebuild leadership development is going to be in another book. I haven't found that book yet. And Pfeffer's answer is kind of, you need more people like me. So he wants to closer integration with business schools. And neither of those struck me as being um, a realistic response to a, a very well-articulated problem. So I think both of them are really good demolition jobs. But uh, in my belief that you can't just demolish, you have to rebuild. And in some ways, you know, I wrote my book on leadership just to, to try to put my finger on what works in leadership development and what doesn't work. And in order to minimize the huge amounts being wasted every day, every week, every month in Leadership programs, which are expensive, well-constructed, but totally ineffective. And well, to me, I was going to say, my, my only bottom line is, did this program change behavior permanently? If the answer is, well, people loved it, I, I don't care. That's irrelevant. It's completely irrelevant. Sorry, Matt, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, I was going to uh, happily jump on your bandwagon. I think the, the big problem is 
uh, Pfeffer and Kellerman have done a great job showing that traditional leadership development fails. So we, we know that there's no efficacy. We know that there are billions and billions of U.S. dollars spent annually on attempting to modify leader behavior or at least prepare people to take on the new roles. But we don't see any actual outcomes or efficacy. The trick is, what do you do? How do you model this in such a way where we can actually evaluate the efficacy? Yes. And that's what I don't know. I haven't come up with a way to say, okay, this intervention, this leadership development process is going to prepare people to take on uh, executive level roles. And we know that there's a, a, a causal effect. We know that if they go through this program, they become better leaders. Yeah, you're, you're right. And to me, the only measurement is not really asking the person. I, I can give you um, interventions and you love them and you tell me how effective they've been and you thank me heartily and shake my hand. But the real only, the judgment is when you're back in the workplace, what, what, what does anyone notice about the way you've changed? And if no one notices anything, I don't care what you think, it's failed. So one, one of my simple me methods for measuring impact is you ask the people around the leaders what what are the changes you're noticing what's happening in this place that didn't happen before and th that to me is the indication of change behaviors and things altering in the organization now i think there are some issues around uh, confidence and security of the leader i don't think it's all about uh, let's worry about everyone else i think you need to worry about everyone else and worry about leaders and they often need massive support and they need psychological buoying up you know to have the courage and to have the, the the wherewithal to institute those kinds of changes and to make the changes in themselves but often we go the other way we focus so much on the individual and fit, making them feel strong them feel confident we don't think about whether they're actually making any difference whatsoever so it's that balance Let's take a step back, though, because uh, as you're talking about changing behavior and 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 having, uh, for lack of a better word, let's call them the followers in the environment, notice behavioral changes. What are those behavioral changes that we're trying to see? And what do we mean by leading? I mean, let, let's let's go back to the rudimentary, the basics and define it. Because if we we go with the James McGregor Burns definition of transformational leadership, that's a very Americanized view of what leadership is. And is that what we're talking about when we're still dealing with leadership development? Is that what works in today's world? Uh, or, or are we talking about a more systems-based leadership approach? Are we talking yeah, I, I would say every model regardless has failed no that and they're all identical in in at base they're all identical so i'm i'm not really interested in saying matt it's servant leadership is what we need it's authentic leaders that we need it's transformational leaders that we need because they're they're all just models and models without context don't work now well, they're broken clock right i mean they work yes like maybe Yes, that's true too. That's absolutely true. But I, I met someone in uh, Australia who was one of the founders of Bain Consulting. He worked with Bain when he left uh, McKinsey, uh, left sorry Boston Consulting Group, and he said the reason they set up Bain was because Boston were brilliant at models and rotten at implementation.
So all they did was took the same buying models, the same uh, Boston Consulting Group models and implemented them. And it was spectacularly successful. But he said two things to me. One was that um, in terms of leadership, that often in his experience, those companies where you don't really know who the leader is are much more successful than the ones who are always headlining leaders. They're the ones that trip over and, and fail. And the second thing he said was that, that implementation is, which is what we've said in a way, implementation is all about context. Implementation isn't going in and doing the same thing in company A that worked and therefore putting it into company B, C, D, E, F, G, and H so you can make some leverage and profit. He's saying that, that one of the intelligent ways that Bain responded in the early days was to take some time getting to know the organization and therefore the implementation was always always tailored and in some ways that that's true of leadership it, it should be based around what the organization is how it operates its ethos and culture what needs to change and what doesn't need to change and where leadership will work and where it won't work wait so, nigel what is leadership then Leadership is the ability to engage a, a, a team, a group, a division, an organization around a common mission and purpose. That's what I think it is. And, and to, in some ways, move out of the way all the things that are trying to stop that organization achieving its mission and purpose. So uh, I, I'm... I suppose you could say that's a particular view of leadership, which it is. But uh, but I think that where leadership is about me proving that I can raise the share price for you know three straight quarters, uh, I, 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 I to me that is simply expediency. That's not leadership, uh, and I, I I want leaders to be able to galvanize a whole organization to move it in the right direction and to make people feel that their contribution is respected and it, it all adds up to m moving forward to that common purpose so, there's, so there's, it's a it's a it's about people I, I suppose not about leaders it's about people there's a wonderful um uh comparison of some of the ways in which warren bennis and others uh, i think burton annis and others uh, identified differences between leadership and management and they take quotes from both uh, of those guys and others and highlight leadership is X, management is Y. And since their quotes come from different times and you look at them and you say, ah, actually, that's pretty much the same thing. Yeah. So leaders uh, establish direction. Managers organize and point people in the right direction. Well, no difference there. And so when I listen to your, your definition uh, about mobilizing people toward that common goal, um, there's, there's something more to it, isn't there? There is. I, I, th I think so. That, that um, There is that famous quote from Cotter, which is that, that managers work in the organization, leaders work on the organization, so that, that managers implement um, what has been given to them. They implement the structures and, and the procedures. Uh, leaders build and develop those structures and procedures. Yeah. I think that's true. But on the other hand, if you go to Crotonville, um, sadly closed, 
Um, but if you go to Crotonville and look on the plaque on the wall uh, that commemorates the opening in 1947 or whenever it was, it, it says that it was the G General Electric Management Center. And General Electric was trying to develop general managers, GMs. That was the purpose of Crotonville. And they produced these blue books, which I've got one of them. I was lucky enough to um, manage to get hold of one uh, electronic version of a blue book. Basically, they spent six weeks in Crotonville learning the procedures, which they were then told to go back to their respective parts of General Electric Company and to implement. So it was, and that's management. To me, that's management. Who wrote the blue books is a very interesting question. They were written by one or two of the, the, the senior people in Cronenberg, including the, CE, the CEO at the time. So to me, they were the leaders and, and all of those general managers were the managers. And there was a difference. One was writing the blue books. The other was, was uh, processing and implementing the blue books. So th that was as clear as a bell. But G GE turned from that, uh, a management center. And now if you look at the big plaque, it's GE Leadership Center, Leadership Development Center. That's what's the big thing on the, on the cool word. Yes. Leadership's yes. a cool word. Well, I'm always, I'll always be grateful to you for introducing me to Keith Grint. Yes. And I think Keith, to me, <clears throat> synthesized the distinction between leadership and management. You know, by taking Rattel and Weber's uh, wicked and tame problems and then Keith exactly. added the critical piece but yeah. differentiating it on this continuum where leaders are the ones who cope with deal with facilitate the organization through the wicked problems yeah. but you don't need leadership for tame problems no that's absolutely right uh, yeah and, and, you, and you need process for tame problems yeah. wicked go beyond tame and right that's that's absolutely he's right that's exactly what you put your finger on the people who've got the courage to tackle some of the the things where the answers are abundantly not clear and where just any intervention changes the nature of the problem in the first place but that's so like it's, it's like quantum physics it's like the difference being being orthodox physics and working in quantum physics as soon as you touch anything quantum physics Ooh. it changes Ooh. so i think that that's interesting analogy i think it's uh, whether you're a, a common physicist or you're a quantum physicist but that's why you, what you said about context is so important because when we're talking about wicked problems the context they wouldn't be wicked if we knew what was coming and we knew what to do about them yes so what makes something wicked is we don't know we yes. don't understand and we don't see it happening so it's a yes. constantly shifting context yes. so leadership yes. is about managing the context it is and right. it's also about uh, consulting on the context you know that leadership is galvanizing the most diverse and and varied views and taking and taking a a decision based around all of that information so that leader's job is to seek, seek out options and then to take some, uh, make some choices about what they do, tentatively or firmly, whatever. But 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 leaders have to make decisions. They have to make choices. You you can't be a leader sitting in your office going, oh, well, we could, well, yeah, maybe, yeah, I'm not sure about that, because you'll be out of business in a month. But this is why I love the way you approach leadership development, because you focus leadership development not on, let's look at you as a human. Let's look at uh, styles, let's look at processes and models. You say, let's look at the context and let's 
develop you to learn how to flexibly identify what it is, predict where it's going, and mold the environment in order to deal with it. Completely agree. So it's basically we. I, hope, I, I want to teach I got that from you. I hope you. Agree. <laughs> I'm glad I agree with myself, which is rare. You know, I have to say I disagree with myself as many as times as I agree with myself. But the, the point is you teach leaders to read the situation, to read and interpret and do the best they possibly can to make very difficult decisions in a very complex right. world. Full stop. So that brings us if so that starts to then formulate what do we do about training leaders? You know, we start with the context and teach them how to read it. Yep. I think the other thing that I got from you is your view of one leader is another person's view of a loser. And that we, you know, just take Trump, for example, the fact that we have 50% uh, of the United States following this guy indicates at least to some degree, there's a different perspective out there. Yeah. Right or wrong, I would say so. agree yes. or disagree, people have a different <clears throat> perspective. And so how we deal with perspective is equally important to context. Yes. Right. So how do we think about perspective? What do we do about training leaders, developing leaders, acknowledging leaders may see the environment differently than we do and the people around them experience it differently as well? Yeah. The answer is, I think, field work. That leaders don't do enough field work. They don't get in there. They don't talk to people. What is field work? I mean, field work it, it's, uh, 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 yeah I, i'm sorry i'm i'm probably misquoting uh, nicolini the the acad academic at warwick business school Nicol nicolini says that that you, you make decisions based on your understanding you only gain an understanding by being inside not on the outside so nicolini listens observes or recommends listening observing talking to and making decisions based on understanding rather than guesswork or assumption and i think he i think he's right that leaders in my experience spend their career learning how to talk and spend their career losing the ability to listen and i think that if we can get more leaders in talking less and listening more their job would be easier because sometimes the solution is there in plain sight and yeah. by your own assumptions of, of of what you understand you block off the the that obvious solution and the only way into that is to listen um, and listen in a humble way you know what do you think where is your perspective and my question which i i use all the time and i've shared it with ten thousand people which is what is stopping you doing your best work? If you ask that as a leader, if you ask that through an organization, throughout an organization, you suddenly begin to understand the way the organization fails its staff, fails its customers, and in some ways fails itself. So that if you can remove some of those blockers and to re-engineer the organization in a way that will allow people to do their best work, you then deal with some of the, the, the more tricky bits of, of uh, organizational development and change because you're actually working with the staff with the people not confronting them and working against the people and it's always struck me as amazing that as, as human beings we are 
a designed, inbuilt DNA. We change and adapt. That's how we survived uh, as a species. And yet we somehow take that innate willingness to adapt and change and we turn it into uh, entrenched, I will not give in. I will not concede. You are not going to do this. <clears throat> and that, that's a spectacular fail on every level. Well, it's huge take, it's also a denial. Turn it into something else. Sorry. It's also a denial of the system. Yes, it is. Well, uh, one of the things I'm, uh, I'm concluding <clears throat> recently is that if we could take and teach people how to read the context yep. and we could teach people how to think about systems. Yep. If exactly. we can get people to start doing systems mapping, if we can yes. get them to yes. uh, recognize how the different elements within a system interplay with each other and how one system fits into a more complex system to a more complex system. Yep. Uh, we are training now our leaders some truly transferable skills that affect their ability to manage wicked problems. Yes. Totally. If, and if you think, if you go back to Sangi's fifth discipline, what is the fifth discipline? The fifth discipline is systems thinking. Yeah. And Sangi believed that, that, and he probably still believes, uh, that if you make sure... Right? He's, still he's still alive. alive. Yeah. Yeah. He's still around. Yeah. I was, uh, I was due to speak. He's got a, a, a organization, learning organization group in Amsterdam. And I was due to speak at their conference, but it got cancelled because of the pandemic. You know, basically, no one would, everyone was too scared to go in case they caught COVID. So we didn't do it. But Senge was going to come over. Um, so he's, he's still around. It's yes. a wicked problem. It was a it's wicked a wicked problem. problem. Yeah. That, that was a wicked problem in itself. But yes, that, that Senge believed that if we could give people the tools to think in systems, not in individuals or in whatever whatever other limited thinking then we were right there at learning organization yeah. it's actually a bit more complicated it didn't it didn't happen but <clears throat> i think he's on the right track systems thinking is the fifth discipline yeah well i i think that's a, it it doesn't it it seems like it shouldn't be profound anymore but i think it is yeah you know it if, is profound. the more you can get a leader to recognize it, and some great leaders did it intuitively you know, yeah. take the American president, Franklin Roosevelt. This guy was an intuitive systems thinker. Yeah. Uh, you know, you look at Seaman Vale in France. She was an intuitive systems thinker if if she wasn't trained in it at all. But, um, you know, the great leaders in history saw the big picture. Yeah. And if you can see the big picture, you can start to, to oh, I almost uh, used the word manipulate it, but you can act on it. Yes. And it's true. Uh, Churchill was a big systems thinker. You know, Churchill realized that it was worth putting all your efforts into one thing because of the big, massive systematic systemic consequences of, of not doing that. So he he would, you know, he would get everyone engineered around a certain small thing because he saw that that was absolutely right. instrumental in solving a much bigger thing always. So yes, I think he was instinctively, he saw that the, the pieces on a, a much more complex and, and in some ways wicked, wicked problems that others yeah. didn't see. And he but translated that, it into things people could do. Well, Churchill's a, a great example school. though. Churchill's a great example of now the third piece that, that uh, we can talk about, which is the passing of time. 
with regard to leadership that that with more time you can see the the effectiveness that a leader may have had yeah, the yeah. failure a leader had but in the moment sometimes we give too much credit to the leader and not enough to the people around that person or not enough to the environmental factors or we don't give them enough credit now take churchill he was a failure a total failure until world war ii he had there was no everything he touched people died or it didn't work or, or yeah whatever. gallipoli was it was yeah. one of churchill's great ideas not <laughs> you know, all we need to do is send a few thousand people here and we'll we'll the turks will run away and everything will be fine and it was an absolute and then, catastrophe uh, completely right i'm hoping he felt bad about that but. yes <laughs> uh, he's he, he what he said about it is quite interesting what he said was that he, he it didn't work out the way he thought it might so he's admitted that it went wrong but he's not saying that you could have predicted that it would go wrong um from the ab initio and um yes that's true and when when the, the, the second world war started churchill was in the minority you know he was the one banging on about germany long before everyone else and everyone he was he was like a kind of pariah figure in the Conservative Party because he'd switch parties uh, from the Liberals. And um, it, it, it was really come the, you know, the classic come, come the time cometh the man. You know, he was there right at that moment. He was the only one with courage and foresight to see this thing through. And uh, he gradually won over the entire, not just Parliament, but the, the entire nation. But yes, well, then, you're right. Do you take Chamberlain? do we fault chamberlain i mean in the moment chamberlain had no money only the navy was built up at all he had no no infantry and chamberlain was like if we go to war with hitler now yeah we'll be destroyed yeah it's all true so yeah today we call chamberlain an appeaser today we call chamberlain wimpy but my gosh if he didn't make those decisions in the moment catastrophe would have happened and so yes, it's true right, yeah he bought some time he bought time he bought right. time now I, whether he, he did that consciously knowing that war was inevitable but let me buy some time or whether he genuinely believed that this piece of paper you know like Hitler's Hitler's promised he won't go to war so well, um I but that's know. the problem right now we can look back with hindsight we can look back and say ah oh, now we see that Chamberlain was probably right. Churchill was probably let right a few years later, but at the time they fight, they argue yes. politically, they, and we don't know. And so we need a little bit of hindsight to see what worked and didn't work. We cannot yes. evaluate you as a leader until after you've led and yes. after we've seen the impact of that. Yes, it's absolutely true. It's absolutely Which means true. How the heck do you forecast who's going to be a good leader? Yes, that's also true. I find that, that is difficult. And um, to me, the, the, the question, one of the first questions I would ask of a prospective leader of an organization is um, try and get at how humble they are, how much they are willing to dump some of their ideas and what things they're not prepared to dump. So I, I, I think that there are sorts of all sorts of ethical dimensions which should never be dumped. But I also think there are some hard-held beliefs which may have to be dumped. So it's whether you've got someone who is able to react to the situation, in a way, I guess you could say Chamberlain and Churchill both did, 
or whether you are dealing with people who come in with very entrenched views about what they're going to do and are not going to are not, not going to shift regardless because that that to me they may have um initial success but ultimately they are in trouble Nigel, if you don't mind, I'd like to pivot to a slightly different topic. I'd like to dig into how we humans conceive of, describe, and think about the leaders around us. So Tina Kiefer from uh, uh, University of Warwick, and did I say that right? I never say it. Yeah, Warwick. It's Warwick. Warwick. So she's a professor of organizational behavior, and she did a whole series of studies um uh about how people conceive of leadership and so she would ask a group of people to draw a leader and she started these studies back in the uh 2016 uh during the uh the US presidential election between Clinton and uh, Trump and she, um and invariably no matter whom was in the audience to draw the picture she, they would draw a man and these were people who were highly supportive of Clinton, Hillary Clinton, not Bill. Hillary Clinton, they were highly supportive of women in general, they were feminists, they were espoused uh, uh feminists and yet when asked to conceive of and draw a picture, they would draw a man. And the UK, since this was done in the UK, had had women in in the prime ministership at that point whether it was Thatcher or others and uh so it's fascinating to me how we then conceive of leadership and with the passage of time we look back at who was effective who wasn't um in covid all these women who were in leadership roles running their countries were given great credit for managing covid more effectively than their male counterparts and the uh reason was because they were women not because they were total packages not because they were trained well not because they had other skills that we should uh honor and espouse but because they were women and so it's an interesting phenomenon when we think about how we reflect on who was a good leader who wasn't a good leader and so forth I'm not sure I know where I'm going with this, especially when you look at your watch when I'm saying these things. I'm I'm just uh, no 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 I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm I'm doing that because for some bizarre reason my watch is registering this as a workout. <laughs> so it no longer is. Can you sweat? Uh, yes, possibly. <laughs> probably probably burnt more calories than no. uh, than I would if I was doing I was doing spin spin class. Yeah. But um bringing this up by the way because I'm uh, as we've been talking about this I'm just trying to think about how we think about who's successful. Yeah. And who isn't and and uh the the way we conceive of of leadership in our culture in our mindset and our the mental models we use um can be somewhat limiting. Yes, completely agree. And um if you look at leadership you know i i always, i said many many years ago that this would be the century of women and um 
I, I still believe that. I think that women will be running the show by you know, mid mid century, much 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 more than they are. Because in some ways, that 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 tendency, the tendency to um, be more holistic, to be less dogmatic, to be more uh, consultative. I'm parodying in some ways, but generally to be more consultative it, are, are the right kinds of skills and temperament. And in the pandemic, that the, the female leaders who were very successful sat and listened. You know, they did their field work. They had no preordained assumption about what should what, what they should do and what they shouldn't do. And it's not true that they all got it right. That the, the prime minister of Belgium was female, and and it, things got really very hairy in Belgium. But generally, by and large. They were the people of the moment, and they made a difference. They they approached that's where the leadership the role comes in, right there. So yeah. they got it right in the moment, sorta. But then sort we look of, at yeah. the COVID data for them, and they their country suffered as much as every other country overall, right? So so you you know you Australia still ended up struggling. Germany ended up struggling. Um, uh Denmark with a meta uh I never say her last name properly Frederickson um they all struggled in the end right as they continued to progress through the the pandemic and so they struggled they got it right which is it as we look at their roles their positions um we we attribute success superficially they didn't fail because of any other reason either. They failed because it was a wicked problem. Yes, In other words, exactly. it's not, it's, we, we attribute the wrong thing to, to a lot. Uh, and that gets us in trouble, I think. Yeah, I, I think that's... Uh, if you wanted a classic example of a wicked problem, there you have it. Yeah. And therefore, people had to make decisions and sometimes they got those decisions right and sometimes they got those decisions wrong sometimes that that what was right one moment suddenly six months right. later was wrong and and so it went on it was extremely difficult and in, in some ways that's a study of leadership in a way and we attribute it to one thing instead of the system yeah, exactly and we attribute it to one person instead of the system now, this, yeah. it was the system that was that that was was flaky and faulty you know just things like you know the the testing regime and so on that was way behind where it should have been therefore decisions were made based on poor data so right. you know, the leader was just what one person in the chain you know right. not definitely responsible for it we had a particular problem in uh, boris johnson who never really as prime minister never really took it all seriously so we we flipped and flopped you know um from one extreme to the other from it's okay let's just carry on to you're all on pain of death you all have to go home and stay there for a for a month so it, we uh, Britain but I happily um, traded with you at that time yeah some in some ways that, had Trump. yeah it, we'll yeah <laughs> in some ways looking back you know that the, the the kind of minimal locking down that was done in yeah. the UK kept everyone sane whereas yeah. in countries like New Zealand where where there was ferocious now the, the the psychological effects on families who were separated yeah. for months and months the effect on children my own two little grandchildren in New Zealand were, were completely unsocialized you know that the, when my wife and I went out as soon as we could and we walked into their house they said go away go home this is our house because I hadn't seen anybody but most yeah. of their life their house was 
what mummy, daddy and us. That's it. Yeah. They weren't used to any kind of contact. And they found it very difficult to adapt. And they're still, they're still struggling socially. So there are, there are all sorts of issues that one, one solving one problem just simply creates others. So yeah. how do you get that balance? It's very, very difficult. So, Nigel, as you're aware, we typically end all of our episodes with the best and the worst in L&D for the past week. My best comes from LinkedIn. Joseph Devlin, a professor of cognitive neuroscience at, I think it's University College London, heard that pervasive zombie of a myth about learning styles on TV and decided to address it in a post. Link in the show notes. This was a post I wish we all could write. He so elegantly debunked the concept, explained nuance, and shared examples and insights. He did so without attacking anyone, calling them names, or being even flippant or snarky. He was kind and supportive, but evidence-informed. A true model for how we should approach the debunking conversation. The worst? Why won't the learning style zombie just die? In the past week, I've seen at least six distinct posts on LinkedIn from experts who had HR, I've had HR clients profess their merits for adapting to style and even had the train, the trainer participants I met with struggle with why learning styles based design is problematic. It's indeed a zombie of a problem. But what about you? What's your best and worst, Nigel? Best was I was in Stockholm speaking at the learning conference. Best was an extraordinary consensus uh, amongst the group about what was important and, and what was going on. Very different from other learning conferences where, you know, we talk about onboarding and then we talk about leadership and then we talk about databases and then we talk about AI and they're all totally separate and they have very little link. This was all coherent and it was a pleasure talking to people who were thinking big and, and thinking holistically. The worst, I think, was um, coming back to the UK and just seeing uh, people struggling with simple processes and getting them wrong. You know, I had delayed flights and it just bad communication, poor leadership, no one taking responsibility. So you, you kind of came out of a conference feeling really good about humanity, slept out to the airport and started immediately feeling a lot worse. So yes, those two things confront you, not just in a week, but in, in a matter of hours, the highs and the lows. Yeah. Well, thank you, Nigel, and uh, and uh, we really are happy to have had you join us and uh, hope you'll come back. I'd love to. I think we need to talk about, so how would you build a leadership development program? Let's what do would that. you do? Yeah, let's, what would you do then? In the light of everything we've said, so how do you do that? I love that That's idea. It's a good, good question. Okay, excellent. All right. We'll do it. This has been the LDA Podcast. I'd like to once again thank Nigel. I'll hold him to his promise to come back. Tune in in two weeks from now for the continuation of Marcus Bernhardt's AI series. And in one month, Clark and I will be back, taking all things fun and engaging with several surprise guests. So tune in, same channel. <laughs>